listening to uh, Love and Science with me, Malcolm Love and Andrew Glester and Hannah Beswick, uh, as usual. And uh, we're delighted to have your company uh, this uh, Monday afternoon. Uh, we've got an hour of science chat, science in the news, science behind the news. And uh, as you've heard, some good music and great guests. We've got, a, we've, we've got, we've got somebody here called Jamie Love. And um, it's the first time he's been on the show. You might think, well, what's the coincidence? It's a big coincidence. That is having a coincidence. Some, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> having, having somebody called uh, uh, Jamie Love and the presenter is called Malcolm Love. Mm. And there is a reason for that. And that's he, he is my son. Congratulations. Yeah. And he's had to live with that stigma his whole life. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Welcome, Jamie. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the reason um, Jamie's on the show, as you'll hear in a moment, is because he's involved with one of our news items. He's not, he's not been making the news, uh, but uh, he knows a little, bit, uh, a little bit about it and has an unusual angle uh, on the story. Hang on there because you'll find out a bit more about it. Andrew, hello. Welcome. Hello. Are you well? I'm. I am pretty good, thank you. I'm. Uh, I'm I th- do. I, you seem to me to be a little bit taller. Do I? I think so it's just the chair. The yeah. chair's just a bit higher. I think yeah. it's usually yeah. the chair collapses just before no, the show. No, I think there's been an incremental increase over over the weekend. Okay. I think that's because you're older. Oh, I am older. <laughs> I see what you've done there. <laughs> <laughs> I am considerably older than I was this time last week. Oh, that's a shock, isn't it? We, yes. we, we get older by a year at a time. My yes. goodness, how does that happen? Fortunately, I do now have the answer to life, the universe and everything. Yeah. Good. Which is good. Congratulations. Good. Wisdom. I missed out on that when I was your age. Oh, did you? <laughs> I'll let you know what it is after the show. It's not a problem. Uh, there's only a couple of years between us, so I know, but uh, yeah. you know, when it happened to me, I, I didn't enter into the wise, <laughs> the wise stage. Um, and Hannah, hey. uh, this is an important show because I have to, I have to say uh, we're all a bit sad because you've been with us for a year and this is your last show. Yeah, really sadly, this is going to be my last yeah. show with you guys. How, well, but we're not. Yeah. There's no way. <laughs> Boo me. There is no way we're going to allow you to say that this is our. This is your last show. You okay. See, this is. This might or what might not be your last show in uh, person. Uh, in person presenting in the studio. It may or may not be. Who knows? Mm. But um, definitely, it won't be your last show uh, contributing. To yeah. us. We will not let that happen. It's going to be really, really sad not to see you guys every week in this tiny studio. Yes, <laughs> we, have su- we have such fun. We do. Yeah. Where, where are you going? I'm going to London. Oh, yeah. That's where the streets are paved with gold. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really excited to go, but I really will miss this. Yes. Yeah. We'll miss Indeed. you. Well, too. we'll miss you too. But we've got a whole show to get through. Oh yeah. Before we get also we, that we, we 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 get to that point. So it's it's very uh, very important. Also, uh, just a little bit of a, an announcement uh, to say uh, we like our colleagues. Very sorry, something went wrong. The server that holds all of our programs went completely mad uh, last week. And uh, if you were trying to uh, listen to us offline, uh, or you uh, uh, were trying to download the shows afterwards, well. It didn't happen. So we're really sorry about that. But the server's up and running. And you can listen to all the fabulous shows that go out on uh, BCFM, uh, including ours, Love and Science. You just have to uh, go to the website and you can uh, find the look at the schedule. Find Love and Science under L and you can uh, listen to previous shows. Sadly, not last week's. Uh, but, uh, you know, these casualties happen. Mm. So uh, that's enough uh, setting up for the, for the week. Uh, our first story is all is a sad story uh, 
because it's about um, a remarkable creature called uh, Coco. And uh, Coco, the uh, gorilla, has died. And uh, she lived um, in uh, San Francisco Zoo, in the zoo in San, San Francisco. Um, and uh, Jamie uh, Love is on the show because you were involved in making a film for the BBC all, all about I was. Coco. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so tell us what happened. You went, you went out. I mean, I, I remember you going. You went, mm. you went out, what, about two years ago now? Two years ago, yeah. So we, we, um, a small crew of us went out to San Francisco to film with Coco for six weeks in total and um, the idea was just to tell her story um, you know it's been a 40 at that point it was a 44 year long story um, that, that had kind of set off the imagination of the scientific community now I, sh- oh, I should so, I should say at this point you're you're not here because you're a scientist no no I'm not a you're, scientist you know you know a naturalist or, so, or something like that but no. but of course you will know uh, uh, quite a bit about the story the story of, of Coco but I That's was going to ask you you say 44 year story hmm. Do you happen to know whether whether that's um, the sort of natural lifespan of a uh, of a gorilla or uh, gorilla in captivity? Yeah, I thought you might ask me that question. <laughs> I'm not sure about. Um, so well, I, 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 say, I think that, I think know. that in captivity they'll last. They they live for slightly longer. Um, Coco was I think slightly older than gorillas tend to usually um, uh, last, uh, especially yeah. in the wild. They'll they'll yeah. die sooner. Yeah. Um, but but uh, you know she was she was um, it was a completely unexpected death by all accounts and uh, very sadly uh, you know her carers. Yeah. Yes. Uh, absolutely. And and of course her main carer is a lady called Penny. Penny Patterson. Yeah. yeah. Uh, t- t- so I should probably tell you a bit about the sort of the history of Coco from the beginning, really. Okay. Um, which was that she she was in a nutshell she was uh, a gorilla that was born in San Francisco Zoo in in 1972. Um, and she and she fell into the care of Penny Patterson, um, uh, in, in, you know, who, who was looking for a, a doctorate, a subject to do a doctorate with. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, it was um, um, this language study that became this huge sort of cultural and scientific behemoth over the next sort of twenty years. Yeah. Um, and uh, at a very early age, Coco was able to learn um, a huge number of new new words. Ne- nearly every. Um, nearly every day there was a new word that she was learning or a new command or something so it was a very exciting study yeah. um, and of course there were other studies done in America and elsewhere there was Washoe and Project NIM but, but perhaps the most high profile one was was Coco yeah and, 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 and it, she came to hold this view that Coco in fact using sign language was able to communicate uh, with humans, and this was yes. this was a hugely yes, controversial absolutely. thing that she actually uh, made sentences. Yeah, exa- uh, and, exactly. And, and so, so and, and this was this was a source of quite a lot of controversy because obviously uh, there there are two branches of thought really in, in in this area of study, which is one one is that animals absolutely cannot um, understand language and they can't communicate with us. So, for example, one of our contributors, Herb Terrace, who had a chimpanzee called Nim. I don't know if you know you might have heard of yeah. Project Nim. Um, and uh, he, he was absolutely adamant at the end of it that Nim was not able to understand language, but, but more that it was um, learned behaviour that he learned to sort yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, with, so, with so animals might know, f- for example, um, that they can tell tenderness in a voice 
or kindness may, yeah. may be. I mean, it's hard for us to know. But they wouldn't know that you're saying, you know, they're their poor thing, you know. No. and, and hurt your poor. Or, or that they would necessarily understand the motivations behind what we're yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, and, um, but Penny was on the other side of that camp, but she was absolutely sure that Coco understood everything that um, people said to her yeah. and that uh, not only could she understand a thousand uh, words but that she'd also, she'd also be able to remember um, f- you know, f- to, to, to times far off in the past for example when Robin Williams died um, Coco was apparently very sad at the news of being told that Robin Williams had died and, you know, because they had, they had brought up a, sp- a special well, friendship t- Can you tell us just a little bit about that because that's, that's well. completely <laughs> out of the blue Coco was really sad that Robin Williams died Oh I see, yes I, mean, yeah. what, what, I, need to break, I probably need to contest Contextualise yeah, this slightly, what don't it, I? What gone on so, there? so um, Coco, um, for those that, you know, for, for, for people that haven't maybe heard, is it, it became this superstar because after after um, having learned um, language, um, after having learned sign language, she then became this megastar in America, and lots of people were kind of lining up to go and meet Coco and sit with her in her trailer. Um, and um, d- you know, various people have gone in there. People like um, Sting and Robin Williams and Leonardo DiCaprio and Peter Gabriel um, and William Shatner, my personal favourite, went in there and had a had a good chat with Star her. Trek, yeah. And it, and it was really just to raise the profile. I mean, the Gorilla Foundation, who who own who came to own Coco, um, which is the company that um, Penny Patterson set up with Ron Cohn, her um, her collaborator, her scientific collaborator, Ron Cohn. They, they were very anxious to raise her profile in order to make more money for the Gorilla Foundation, but also to sort of raise awareness of issues surrounding, you know, the gorillas in the wild as well. So Coco became this kind of spokesperson for, for, for wild gorillas, um, as well as this um, really interesting language study. Yeah. So it's kind of a T- tell us the story of when you first met Coco. So, he, so here you go. You go over with a colleague. Yeah. 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 So that's small. And your, small and your job was to do what then? So I mean, our job was was to um, tell Coco's story in full. And, and, and one of the things we we had was thousands and thousands of hours of Coco's of archive, dating back right back to Coco's birth, um, pretty much. Um, back in San Francisco, and we had we had to wade through thousands and thousands of hours uh, looking for behaviour and trying to um, find the story, the kind of the linear story through all the archive. But at the same time, it was that we were there to get to know Penny, uh, get to know Coco, and to start telling um, and, to, and just to uh, c- you know contextualise the scientific project, but also to show how close that bond was between uh, Penny and Coco, because that was one of the, that was really the heart of the story for us was um, the, the sheer love between the animal and, uh, and the human. Yeah. And, so um, what, whatever else was going on, so this, was, exactly, this was clear. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. I, and I think that quite early on the production team, saw, you know, we, we, we could see that dedication and that love very, queerly, uh, very <laughs> clearly yeah. uh, w- with Penny, which was um, sort of, you know, a bit more like um, a relationship between a, a daughter and a mother, yeah. you might think, than, a, than an animal and a trainer. Yeah. That was the kind of the really amazing thing. Uh, and the question I, I, I sort of dived in with was, uh, wh- tell us about your first so meeting. Our, so, our, so our experience was, um, I mean, it was quite amazing. I mean, just to just kind of give you some, some context, we, before we even met Coco, we had been... Um, we had been just looking into hours of footage of her. We'd been reading every newspaper clip we could find and, um, you know, looking at all these programs. So she had become this kind of megastar in our heads. So she wasn't just this um, um, 300-pound gorilla. She was this big megastar. So we, so we sat in the trailer with her, and uh, it was just a sur- completely surreal experience. It was uh, um, like nothing else I can really describe. 
And, and I think, didn't she want to know certain things yeah. from you? I mean, she, she immediately wanted to see um, our teeth. So she was very interested in, in what our teeth looked like. Uh, she was very interested in what our toes looked like. And she would make all kinds of different signs. It was a very, very intense, very strange kind of situation. Um, and Penny would often interject and translate some of the signs that Coco was doing. And then, then we would respond... Um, and there was even a point where we bought her a book for her birthday because we happened to be out there for her birthday, which is July 4th. And she read the book in front of us. So she, she, she unpackaged it and read it, you know, um, read the entire thing in front of us just to kind of show that she was grateful. So it was, it was a really strange situation, kind of like being in the twilight zone or something, you know. Was it at all int intimidating? It was incredibly int intimidating, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um, I, I've seen gorillas in the wild before, but um, this was just sitting inside a trailer with you know, a, you know, a tiny bit of netting between us and Coco just staring you yeah. st straight in the eyes and really wanting to get to know you, really wanting to sort of understand who you are and... Um, and uh, it was completely engaged with us. Yeah. 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 And uh, we're talking to uh, Jamie Love, who, yes, is a relative. <laughs> He's my son, and uh, he, worked, he was working for the BBC a couple of years ago uh, on a project finding out all about Coco. He's been telling us about it. Coco, who sadly uh, died in the last uh, few days um, at, um, what, about 47 years of age, I guess. She was 46. 46 mm. years of age. So, um, so that, that's very sad. And, of course, as we've been saying, she was famous because um, her, the, the person who researched with her, who researched her, mm. uh, uh, um, ended up effectively living with her, caring for her, um, and uh, essentially taking her in as a member of her family. I guess that's what you could say about Penny's relationship. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Penny Patterson's relationship with, with Coco. So very, very sad for her. Uh, at this time um, but it gave rise to this whole controversy about whether or not um, uh, a primate like a gorilla communicates in, in language I, I, I don't think it would be too much of a surprise to say that most experts think not isn't, isn't that fair? That mo most people say no animals do communicate, but they don't speak in sentences that you can translate. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's yeah. fair. I think it's fair to say that um, clearly animals um, are able to understand. Uh, clearly, they're able to build a vocabulary yeah. and understand commands and all those kinds of things. But when it comes to sentence structure, um, you're talking about a much more complicated. Um, system of information and understanding and that's where the controversy is it's, you know can is what Coco's doing really is she really communicating with us by is she understanding our motivations and using you know parts of a sentence to uh, communicate to a, a, at a high level or is that or is that something mm -hmm. else is that just learned behavior is she just reacting yes. to you know other things so that that's that's the main because yes. we're all um we're all used to the fact you know if you have a cat or a dog you yeah. go well yes the, the, the cat does communicate with me yeah. you know the dog does communicate with me both ways yeah. you know we can t give things to the dog and, yeah, the dog and, there's, there's, the, and there's of course that oh. case of a dog who who knows you know a thousand different toys and if you were to take a toy 
or add a toy, I think that's what they do. If, they, if you add a toy into its collection and ask him to go and get it, it will, by inference, yeah. know that, that that's the toy that it doesn't know the word for, so it will take that toy. Yeah. So, you know, they are sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sophisticated language. And then they're stringing to sentences. Then they're stringing sentences. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, so what was that like to, to, to be in that environment? And what was, was, did Penny say, did, did, was Penny translating for you? Yes. Yeah, kind of sign language isn't it that it's yes so so this it became so coco's language became known as american uh, uh sorry gorilla sign language so right. gsl not yeah. asl or esl <laughs> yeah and one of the things that makes it quite hard to um read is that she will use similar very similar signs to say different things but what you'll have to do is take into take into account the context of a conversation that you might be having with her or where she is in her environment to fully understand and and and, and penny was the person who would do all of the in- interpreting because obviously yeah. we couldn't we wouldn't always know yeah what what she was saying but penny would go well she's just said uh, nice weather today you know what i mean it's yes. something like that or, or she'll do something very similar and penny will go oh she's just asked you to yeah. to, to wave it's that kind of thing so. I, mean, I guess a real test of that would would be to have other people who can read sign language, yeah. who would then say, "Yeah, I co- I corroborate." You know, yeah, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I think it was a slightly modified version of American sign language because gorillas can't use their hands; they can't use their fingers as de- in as many ways as we can. That's so it would be a yeah. slightly muted version. Yeah. So then you'd have to have people come in and learn the specific kind of gorilla sign language and then interpret it but if they're learning from the same person that's making the inferences in the first place then you do you may still draw the same conclusions that may may or may not be correct for her but there were incidences of her making up her own words for things she didn't understand didn't know the word for which is quite a good sign of her understanding the meaning behind the words so there was one Incidents where she didn't know the word for ring, so she said finger bracelet because she knew the word for finger and knew the word for bracelet. So it's the thing that goes around your finger, and that's I think that's amazing that she could adapt like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it, it is. And but you know, the, the, I think I guess there, there was always still that central um, uh, sort of for scepticism about mm. whether or not those things were you know those things yeah. were happening. So. Um, I think that's what's really captured the imagination of, of scientists and also just yeah. people in the public who just really want to know, want to know if, if, if actually Coco was able to do that. What did you think? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not sure really if I, if I could say either way, but I, but I would. Um, I, I think that the, the kind of the important thing probably is just that is the are the implications of what Coco was able to, was clearly able to do. I think that the implica- you know, this philosophical and kind of um, existential implications for for humans, in t- you know, and, and our communication with with animals is kind of what's most important, perhaps, about these studies in the first mm-hmm. place. Because I think it re kind of um, reintroduces us to how sensitive animals are and how uh, amazing they are in their internal emotional emotional lives. And you know, that, that I think that's probably the biggest thing that I took away from it, mm-hmm. rather, rather than whether I specifically believe um, in, w- in what I saw was going on. But, but certainly, certainly, of course, I, I, I did. Um, there, there was clearly something happening that is yeah. quite extraordinary. 
Yeah, mm. and, I, and the same for the other other primates. I, I I don't want to be offensive to gorillas, young people, or guinea pigs, right? <laughs> but I'm just thinking about in my house. We've mm. got we've we've had a young person who couldn't speak and now can. Yeah, and we've got guinea pigs who can't speak, right? And one of the guinea pigs seems to be able to communicate what type of food she wants <laughs> to me. She doesn't seem to do it to anyone else. Okay, but if I go into the room where the guinea pigs are, mm. then this one she's called Tribble, right? Mm. Um, Good name. Cause, yeah, right? You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he gets it. Because she's a small brown furry yeah, right, thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, she, <laughs> she, she, if she wants hay, she'll go over to the roof of her house, put her paws on the roof of the house and go peep, peep, peep. If she wants um, the dry guinea pig food, she'll go to the bowl and that's in and go peep, peep, peep. And look me in the eye, you know, kind of peep, 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 <laughs> look me in the eye. If she wants veg, she goes to the veg bowl. If she wants water, she'll go over to the water thing. And I, and it's, I don't know whether she's actually saying that yeah. and I'm just going, and then I'm fulfilling that. And that's, and it's, mm. a, it's a difficult thing to, to say whether that is the case or not. But I genuinely feel it, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not. Uh, it's not the same as a gorilla. And, um, <laughs> but uh, my daughter, when she couldn't speak, I was just thinking about what you said about uh, Penny being the interpreter. And um, when my daughter couldn't speak but was communicating, obviously, as parents, you can tell what they're saying much mm. more than people who don't know them. And that doesn't mean to say that they're not saying what you're saying. It's just that mm. you know them better. So it, yeah. that scepticism that we might feel from that doesn't necessarily follow that... It, it wasn't what no, right, right. Coco was saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, We're going to have to uh, m move on in, in a second, mm. but I just wanted to ask you, what, what was it like um, trying to... Because, I mean, Coco became a cause celeb, um, uh, uh, um, and uh, Penny presumably had this... Uh, mission really to to say well I, you know gorillas can speak and you know here's, here's the living evidence of it you know using the sign language she, they must have been incredibly nervous of the BBC coming along and wanting to make a documentary so were I mean were they cooperative and helpful yeah I mean they were I mean I should say that before I even started there was a, a kind of a I think a seven-year gestation period where the producer Bridget had actually been setting up relationships with them actually getting that access and making them feel comfortable with the idea of us going in because the um, they had I think they're they incredibly enormously protective of Coco for one but also enormously protective of their work and I think that they they wanted to make sure that they felt represented properly and I think that they'd had bad experiences with other production companies in the past in, in America so they, there was they did enter into this thing with quite a lot of trepidation but we spent a huge amount of time with them and um, you know, it's that's it's always the way with these kinds of things. It's a, a lot. A lot of work is kind of gaining the trust of the people, of the contributors, and making sure that we want to sort of be, you know, represent the entire situation in a in an authentic and truthful way. Yeah. And so that's what that's what that was the mo. Brilliant. Uh, and uh, as I said uh, earlier on in the show, if uh, last week uh, people were unable to listen off air and they were also unable to uh, get the download, and uh, I made a dedication, so I'm going to be uh, very indulgent, make that dedication again because it wouldn't have got through uh, last week. And uh, this is Bruce Springsteen waiting on a sunny day, and it's for my brother John, uh, who's having a bit of a rough time at the moment. So, John, this is for you. 
Um, so we're talking about stories, uh, science stories in the news, uh, science behind the news, and uh, there's um, an interesting one here uh, about gene-edited pigs. Uh, we saw this in the Guardian, but it's all over the place. Uh, and the question is, um, is it possible to do um, effectively gene therapy, which we hear about in uh, medical contexts all the time, can we tinker with the genes of animals to make them immune to disease? Because that would be an enormous boon, not only to their well-being, but also to agriculture, which is not always to their well-being. But uh, you see where I'm going with this. Hannah, yeah, do, do, you know, <laughs> do you know much about this? Um, I've read a very small amount on it this morning, um, just about that the Rosalind Institute in the, at the University of Edinburgh have um, claimed that they've been able to make pigs uh, immune to reproductive and respiratory syndrome, which is the most significant disease which affects pigs uh, worldwide at the moment, costs the EU about 1.5 billion um, a year in sort of pig medical costs, I guess, and losses from farming. But what they've done is they've given these pigs a treatment uh, which deleted a part of their genome and consequently made them immune to the disease. Um, And this could have been from a number of effects. I will link the actual article in the show notes so that you've got some more information because I don't understand it fully myself at the moment. Um, but it could be doing something like removing part of the gene that's affected uh, by the disease. And what's worse, you've thrown your notes on I the have, floor. yeah, they've just hit the yeah. floor. You might have heard that, so <laughs> winging it now. Um, and it could, be, it could be that it's deleted a part, um, a part of the genome that made a protein that was affected by the, uh, by the disease or a, a number of other things. But it's really hopeful, actually, that it could be... Uh, could be something to be done in future to help reduce costs of farming because at the moment we do we have these kind of things in plants uh, where plants have a, a gene inserted or altered so that they're immune to certain pests yeah. um so why not do it to animals as well yeah i mean there are a number of reasons why not but um yeah. It could be a really interesting area to move into. It really could. Of course, uh, you know, we'd always want to encourage uh, things to be done. We'd be in favour of things to be done eth- mm. ethically. Mm-hmm. But uh, sa- having satisfied that, it sounds uh, like a tremendous Yeah, yeah uh, to move, prevent move disease. Forward. This uh, particular disease they're talking about is called porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome. And uh, it said it's the most significant disease that affects pigs uh, worldwide, and we've just got figures for um, uh, Europe. Um, it's about 1.5 billion euros a year. That's what it costs mm. uh, agriculture. So we could do with that. Yeah, yeah. That would that would be really good. Now, there's another uh, story. Uh, that I, I don't know um, whether you guys love slugs. <laughs> I can't believe that you do, but. Um, uh, it, there's a story Helen Briggs wrote about this on the BBC. Uh, what do slugs hate? And uh, apparently, there's all kinds. Of, I mean, do you? Let me let's do a quick check here. Okay. Anybody here have a remedy for stopping slugs eating your prized outdoor plants? I don't, but I've seen a number have been tried. Yeah. My parents have a very large garden. They will try anything to stop okay. the slugs getting their flowers. Well, name one. Uh, beer traps. Ah, oh, beer. Yeah. yeah. Beer traps. We, we've been using, in our garden, we've been using eggshells, crushed up eggshells. Mm. Uh, right. And there's the, there's copper as yeah. well. People, people use, uh, they think that slugs won't walk over copper. But mm. you often hear gardeners 
screaming and complaining and saying, I did everything that I could think of and the damn mm. things, you know, still at my prized begonia or whatever it was. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you can tell I'm not a gardener. I just pulled yeah, yeah. flower names. My prized plant. The, yeah, my prized plant. <laughs> of, yeah. um, so uh, what's, do you know a bit about this story again? Huh? Yeah, so these, all these remedies that people try and use, sort of pine bark, grit, sharp grit that they say hurts the slugs on their belly so they don't like to go over it, copper tape, which supposedly gives them a horrible nasty sh- shock when they go over it, a little electric shock, wool pellets and eggshells and beer traps are all supposedly ways you can keep slugs off your plants. Okay. Um, but none of these have been tested at all right. before. And now the Royal so Hort- it's kind of yeah. hearsay folklore. Yeah, yeah. They've not They're, been scientifically tested, right? Exactly, not been scientifically tested. Yeah, okay. Um, and at one point in the article, um, somebody met, uh, it's on the BBC actually, uh, somebody mentions that it could just be a gardener's placebo, something that, that you feel like you can do to make something better because... And for the most part, it's out of your control what eats your plants. But if you feel like you're doing something about it, you feel like you could make a difference. Um, but the Royal Horticultural Society um, are now going to try and do some tests scientifically uh, to test if any of these things make a difference beyond just doing nothing. And they're going to be testing on raised beds and also plants in pots. And they're going to be lettuces. They're going to check them for damage. And they're going to harvest them and weigh them at the end to see if any of them had less damage than others. The or slugs grew or the less. plants? The plants. Okay. The plants, yes. Um, the slugs, um, the Royal Horticultural Society, the RHS's etymologist, um, entomologist? Entomologist. That's the insect one. Etymology is words. Is words. (laughs) Entomologist. Uh, Dr. Jones says that slugs are an important part of an ecosystem and are actually quite um, incorrectly persecuted for the effect they have on on plants. Uh, The one that people hate the most, the really big ones, but they're actually often not the ones causing the damage to your plants. It's often the really small, two centimetre long ones that are causing the damage. Uh, And so when do we find out? Do we know? Um, It should be next year, I think. Oh, no, no, no. Is this... this autumn um around i guess just, harvest time yeah just November in time for or September, next year's harvest right so yeah that's good just in time for setting things up for the next yeah. round yeah. um save your eggshells that's my tip <laughs> <laughs> have you found they made a difference uh i yeah why not yeah. let's say let's pretend they have let's do that sure why not <laughs> All right, so let's let's go on to uh, something completely different now, as far as you can think of, from slugs, but not from bugs. No. Uh, because, uh, well, different I'm going to hand over to Andrew now just to in- introduce this next item. Okay, so um, I, I, probably quite a few of you know about the BBC's 500 Words competition, which is a, a short story writing competition for young people, and the uh, final of it was on uh, last week, the week before, and uh, I was watching it online uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I was watching it because Jason Isaacs was there and he's in Star Trek. And, and you love him. <laughs> I do love him. <laughs> Very much so. He's also incredibly good fun on social media. Anybody who wants to follow him, he's great fun. Anyway, I was watching it and uh, one of the stories, I was looking through the website, one of the stories quickly became my favourite. Uh, you'll see why when you hear it in a moment. Uh, and I'm sure it'll become your favourite too. And uh, it's written um, from the point of view of a virus. Right, by it was in the five to nine category. It's just brilliant, and I found out that the person who wrote it, Esther Clifford, was based in Bristol. First of all, congratulations. What was it that inspired you to write this particular thing? Well, I was inspired to write my story, The Strain, following a conversation with a family friend 
who works for a charity that's fought the spread of Ebola in West Africa. And she told me how viruses, and mainly targeting the flu, mutates and spread. And I thought that it would be very interesting to write a story from the perspective of the flu virus, um, because it would be very unusual and have a dark ending. Yeah. With a slight twist. <laughs> Absolutely. And have you, do you write a lot then? As always? I, I write a lot. I love writing. I have particularly poems at the moment. I like making up stories with my brother. He, he's very, very funny, so he usually makes up stories about his cuddly toys and just about this magical universe where they live in and do lots of silly things. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. I look forward to his stories because he's, yeah. he's not old enough to enter the competition. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he is actually. Oh, is he? So it's five is the youngest you can be. So, yeah. Okay. What's the difference for you writing poems or writing something like this? Well, this involved a lot more concentration and sort of getting down and writing. Poems, um, it's usually just you're free to write everything, whereas this is a certain style of writing that has to be pitch perfect. Also, it's for a competition, so obviously there's a lot more pressure and sort of you want to get it right, whereas with poems you can sort of write freely, like I say, mm. and um, yeah, no one's going to judge it at all. Yeah. Whereas this is judged yeah. twice. <laughs> wow. So yeah, tell me what you had to do for the competition then. So... It's the largest English language writing competition in the world, and 140,000 people entered this year. And there are two rounds. The first round, uh, the top 5,000 are whittled down, and then it's the top 25 from each age category. Even just to get in the top 5,000 is pretty cool. Yeah, amazing. Because there, there are a lot of people who enter. Yeah. So just to get into the top 50 was amazing. Yeah, that really is amazing. You sent it off, and then were you just sort of... Expecting nothing to happen, or were you hoping? And... I was hoping because last year I entered as well and I got the top five thousand, which is already amazing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was, I was I was waiting for something to happen, and then I got into the top five thousand, and that was a big thing for me as for the second time running. And the, I wasn't really expecting to get in the, the top fifty of both age categories, let alone the top twenty-five of my age categories. Yeah. It was amazing. That's incredible. And you had a big uh, celebration at Hampton Court, was it? Yeah, it was basically a party at Hampton Court. <laughs> and the top three from each age category were read out. I, I didn't get I didn't get into the top three, but it was it was incredible just to be there and have that sort of atmosphere and mm -hmm. yeah, and meet all the other story writers as well. Yeah, they were all there. I mean, it's just so awesome. There were people who were reading out those stories who were sort of famous, like Jason Isaacs was there, yeah. who I know because of Star Trek. And uh, I was very excited. I was watching it on the internet yeah. as it was happening. Brilliant. Listen, yours wasn't read out then, but could you read it out for us now, please? Yes. Thank you. The Strain. Not all stories start once upon a time and end happily ever after. Happy and sad, good and bad, depends on your point of view. How you feel about my story certainly does. Every single lonely day of my life has been a chase, a battle for survival. For so many painful years I've been forced to hide in the shadows and all I've ever wanted is to find a home where I can fit in and be myself. I long to be with my family and friends again and hear the familiar pounding of heartbeats. But the Protectorate has other ideas. They trap me relentlessly and never let me sleep. Some days I feel like I can't go on and they've finally defeated me. 
However, there's always that little voice inside me telling me otherwise. Comforting and reassuring, it wills me to keep going, to carry on, straining to stay alive. My only crime is to be different. Is it really so bad just to be like me? But they don't understand and they don't care. They hunt without mercy, continuing to spread their vicious rumours and lies about me and those like me. We, the ones who don't belong, the ones who don't conform. Now no one accepts our kind and we are despised wherever we go. In my exhausted half-dreams there is none of this. No constant battle, no fighting for my life day after terrifying day. I imagine how it would feel to be free of this burden, to blossom and bloom like I've always longed to. And yet the truth always pulls me out of my blissful imaginings and I'm thrown back into aching panic and misery. For that is what I've come to know, is all that I know and all I'll ever know now. It hasn't always been this way. When I was in Spain, I was able to stretch and grow. Under the terracotta sun, I felt invincible, like the thundering roar of a waterfall crashing down the mountainside. That was long before the days of the Protectorate with their white coats, microscopes and medicines. One hundred years ago, I thrived and conquered in the filth and fear of your man-made war. I was the invisible link between countries, Travelling across vast oceans, continents and kingdoms, I was like a ghost, caught on the wind, a secret whisper, an echo from a cave. They would never see me until it was too late and I grew strong out of their suffering. Since then the world has shifted and technology threatens my very existence. I sense it gives your kind hope and a feeling of superiority. But you're never truly safe. My family... Influenza, we've killed millions before and we'll do it again. We've been patiently watching and waiting for our once upon a time. We've been adapting, recalibrating and mutating to find our happily ever after. So I can't help wondering whether your ending will be a fairy tale one. Whoa, that was uh, Esther uh, Clifford, who was uh, came yeah, in the so top funny. 50 of yeah. the... Uh, I mean, that's quite an achievement, the, the uh, BBC 500 Words uh, competition. And uh, there are 140,000 entrants. So thank you very much, Esther, for giving Andrew that... Uh, interview and a big congratulations to you done incredibly well yeah. if you want to read that again or uh, listen to it again it's on the bbc website and we just post a link on the bbc fm twitter feed to that nice. and uh, i should just say you're listening to uh, bcfm 93.2 uh, fm and bcfmradio.com and don't forget to uh, stay tuned to the show uh, after the news because uh, John Ford is getting Bristol home, and John has just joined us. Hi, John. Great Hello. to have you uh, with us. We've got another science story to do before you go, though, before you tell us what we left out of the show, <laughs> um, uh, which is um, it turns out that uh, this year has been a, a major year uh, for uh, hay fever sufferers. So uh, That's a fact. Yeah. So, Can 12. Yeah. So, <laughs> congratulations, hay fever sufferers. Thanks. It's a um, this has been the worst month for hay fever for 12 years. Yes, it has. Uh, according to an article in The Guardian, it says that grasses had perfect ground conditions over late April and May with warm sunshine and flower uh, showers. Flowers. And that was followed in June by a hot, dry 
period when the grass flowers matured and shed clouds of pollen on light breezes and up people's noses. Um, that <laughs> yeah. was a story. Yeah. That it was sounding nice in until the end, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it sounds yeah. absolutely <laughs> delightful. I wish I could have that. Yeah. So do you, do you suffer from this? I, I suffer quite dramatically from it, particularly this year, yeah. Well, yeah. today is the first day since it started that I haven't had to take antihistamine. Ah, no. I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I suffer quite badly. I've taken antihistamine every day for like the last month and a half, I think. Wow. And did it did it just start when? I mean, did it did it just start when um, you were a child? It, I think it started. I think I was like eight. We moved to an area that from an area that mainly farmed sheep to an area that mainly farmed like uh, rapeseed oil, and that's uh, oh. those plants are really bad for pollen. And yeah, just horrible times ever since, guys. You a hay fever sufferer, John? I- uh, a little bit, yeah. I used to suffer very badly years ago, but not so much these days, no. Yeah. Jamie is still with us from talking about Coco, <laughs> our guest for, for, for this week. You are, uh, I've had it once. Yeah. I had it once walking in Richmond Park when I was little, and that was, a lot, and that was, the, was the only time I ever had it. It's a weird thing, yeah. isn't it? Apparent, apparently, the statistic, this, this, uh, well, the statistic is um, today hay fever has reached epidemic proportions and aff- afflicts more than a fifth of uh, the British population, so 20%, uh, 1 in 20. This statistic, is that right? No, I've got that wrong. I think we're slightly... I think it says that in the it's article. But we're slightly more than that here. Yeah, what yeah, I was going to say. More. You are, it's more than two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're statistics. Yes, it's one in five. I'm <laughs> talking nonsense here. This statistic <laughs> has been blamed on modern lifestyles, including obsessive hygiene and excessive use of antibiotics. Yeah. 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 I'm excessively hygienic, that's true. Because the, they say that it's um, a response for you. If, you. if your immune system doesn't have enough to focus on other than itself, it'll start reacting to things like pollen, which isn't yeah. really supposed to be a threat. Um, if you live in too clean an environment, you're not being attacked by enough viruses and things to have your immune system focus on that. But um, I think there's probably a bit more than that going on. Okay. Well, sorry. sorry. Yeah, I, f- I found something out about antihistamines the yeah. other day, which is um, really disappointing for me. This is the, this is the problem I have with with hay fever because yeah. the antihistamines work brilliantly, right? I've got hay fever now. Well, I don't today, but mm-hmm. I have been having terrible hay fever. I take the antihistamine, it stops. I have a sip of alcohol, literally a sip of alcohol, and it all stops working, and I start streaming again. And it's because alcohol contains histamine. Ah. And. That stops the antihistamine working. Is that why my face goes really red when I drink? Yeah. Or you're just very embarrassed. And histamine, just so you know, is a It's also made out of hops and wheat and barley and stuff. Yeah, things. But um, non-alcoholic beer is terrible, but it doesn't stop it. So it still works. So as long as you chill it an awful lot, it's fine. Okay. So, so John. Uh, yes, sir. You're on after the news now. What did we? What happened this? This? Oh, loads, time? loads, and loads of stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it World Cup fever at the moment. We're all enjoying it. Yes. yes. Uh, should we do some French bashing here then? Um, this day in 1783, fellow called Antoine Lavoisier uh, announced to the French Academy of Sciences that water was the product formed by the combination of hydrogen and oxygen. However, the discovery had been made earlier by the British, <laughs> Henry Cavendish. So there you go, stuff that French. <laughs> we got him first with that one. Yeah. Well, that's it. So if the football isn't going well, we can uh, comfort ourselves. Okay. Well, look, we're going to have to leave it there. Stay tuned uh, for John after the news. Uh, John for getting Bristol home. It's been great to have your company and a, a big thank you to uh, Andrew Glester, of course, who's always with us. A huge 
Thank you, and goodbye to Bye, Hannah, Hannah, but not, but not goodbye for good for absolutely certain. Big thanks to Jamie Love, who is our guest. Have yourselves a very good evening. Talk to you next week. Thank you.